Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao. Uh, today, we're continuing our coverage on the COVID-19 crisis, but with a twist and a different focus on communications and media. Uh, I'm very honored to be joined by Dr. Melissa Reynolds. She is uh, the Perkins Cotson Postdoctoral Fellow in the Society of Fellows at Princeton and a lecturer in the Council of the Humanities, History, and Humanistic Studies. Uh, she just wrote a, a fascinating op-ed in the Washington Post, which uh, inspired me to reach out to her and have this interview with her basically about uh, communication failures, a history of, of pandemic and media, how media plays a role in making mistakes and also helping things. So uh, th thanks so much for joining me all the way from Princeton, Dr. Reynolds. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so it was it was a long title that I uh, g gave you. Would you would you mind just starting off by telling our listeners a little bit more of who you are, what your research focus is on campus? Sure. Um, so I am a first year uh, postdoctoral fellow in the Society of Fellows, which has been at Princeton now for 20, over 20 years. I think it was started in 91 or 92. So it brings in um, early career scholars. So basically people shortly after finishing their PhDs in a variety of humanistic disciplines. So it's very humanities focused. Um, there are historians and literary scholars, art historians, musicologists, a whole group of us. And it's designed to really give us a, an incredibly rich and generous environment to sort of launch our research and have a an incredible interdisciplinary conversation. We meet weekly and we share research. And so my um, position in the society, I teach in the Hume sequence, which um, Tiger, you may be familiar with. Uh, some of your listeners may not. It's sort of Princeton. It's really scary. It's, it's, yeah, well, it's so scary. It's a fantastic course. So it basically, um, it's for freshmen and it introduces freshmen to kind of a way to interact with the greats of Western culture from um, from Homer all the way up this year. I think they're going all the way to Franz Fanon and uh, Hannah Arendt, I think. So all the way to the 20th century in a whole year. So I teach in that. And then I also teach in the history department. Um, this semester, I'm teaching a course on a history of um, reproductive bodies from antiquity to the enlightenment. So I'm a historian of medicine and a historian of the book. And those two interests merge in my research, which is about the circulation of everyday medical knowledge um, in pre-modern in England. And so that's sort of the angle I took in the op-ed that you mentioned. Um, and because, of course, I'm sure your listeners are well aware there were a lot of epidemics in the pre-modern world. It's something that historians can um, speak to. Uh, so th this op-ed, why don't we just dive right into it? So it's published on uh, the Washington Post uh, in March, in mid-March. The, the title is Communication Failures in a Pandemic Can Be Catastrophic. Uh, would you mind just telling us a little bit about uh, what your, your thesis is for the op-ed and what our listeners should take away? Sure. Um, so I, I was thinking, you know, when the coronavirus really, I, I thought about the op-ed when the coronavirus was really only just beginning to impact Americans, um, really in the early stages of shortly after Princeton declared that we were going to go online. So we were starting to really feel the tangible effects. And at the time, when I first conceived of the op-ed, um, the presidential administration, President Trump and other advisors were really downplaying the effects of the virus, sort of openly um, dismissing experts. Uh, advice that this could be quite serious. And we were starting, I, I because I'm a historian of, of Europe, I have quite a lot of friends in Italy and um, was getting this sort of picture from my personal network about how serious it was and feeling like the US um, government wasn't doing a good job at communicating this message to the public. And so I started thinking about 
early modern English parallels, and I wrote about a disease not very well known to most. Um, the bubonic plague has gotten a lot of press in the last month because it's the most well-known early modern and medieval epidemic. Um, but the sweat, uh, the illness that I wrote about, first showed up in England in 1485, and it, it sort of it much more closely parallels coronavirus epidemiology, epidemiologically, excuse me, um, in the sense that I, it, I can't pronounce that word either. I, I know I it's it so hard. many times. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many syllables. Um, so in the sense that, so we think, obviously we don't have detailed medical records, but we think it was a novel virus that emerged from a rodent vector host, probably rats. Um, but unlike bubonic plague, which was a bacteria, Yersinia pestis, um, coronavirus, I mean, excuse me, the sweat struck um, very suddenly and it caused pulmonary issues. In fact, we think that it was, it's very similar to uh, modern hantavirus pulmonary sy syndrome. So anyway, it strikes in England in 1485. Again, um, consecutive waves throughout the first half of the 16th century. And what's striking is that England, unlike other European um, nations, or other city-states in Italy, in Germany, and then some cities in France, England had no real public health apparatus in place, um, which is really striking. Uh, after the bubonic plague first showed up in Europe in the mid-14th century, in 1348 to be precise, a lot of other European um, cities, municipal governments had really had put in place public health measures to the best of their ability. They lacked our knowledge of viral vectors and transmissions and bacteria, but they did know that isolating sick people and publishing orders of quarantine and um, you know containing the spread of these contagions, you know, could do could go a long way towards preserving public health. Um, and and England didn't do any of this. So this new sweat, this new disease shows up in 1485 at a moment of really intense political turmoil, a very divided country. So you can see a parallel there to our modern experience. And um, it just sort of wreaks havoc. There's no effort on the part of the government to really offer any sort of information about this disease, um, to, to think about public health measures. And one of the really interesting contrasts is that eventually the disease actually does move into continental Europe in the mid 15th century, 16, excuse me, in 1528. And in Germany, they do exactly the opposite. So um, German municipal doctors do publish about the disease and they do offer um, advice, of course, when you read the advice, it doesn't hold up to our modern medical standards. So this wouldn't have been a, a fix-all, but it goes a long way to um, to explaining you know, or sort of talking about what people do um, in when faced with a, a complete lack of information and a dearth of leadership. And um, so the, the the sort of crux of the op-ed uh, is that what happens is people decided for themselves. What the what the virus was going to do, what the illness was going to do, they um, convinced themselves it wasn't going to affect them. There was no real leadership, uh, and of course, people were affected. Lots of we, they think up to fifteen thousand people died in London during the first outbreak. So none of these sorts of coping mechanisms um, did anything to mitigate the spread of the virus. What we need is is a real concerted communications effort and um, and public measures to ensure uh, public health. There's so much to unpack from from that overview. You I mean you touched on you know the political division within the country. You talked about uh, the comparative experience between England and also Germany, which did a great job containing the the virus, uh, and also how people believed uh, that this thing w w was something they kind of made up their own mind regarding what the virus actually could do. Which so many juxtapositions and similarities 
to compare to today's situation. So it seems that you suggested that in a piece that despite the obvious advances in modern medicine uh, since the 15th century, there are just striking similarities in terms of human nature and, and the way uh, the political systems could ineffectively respond to the crisis. Would you mind just telling us a little bit more about you know, what you observe to be the, the major communications failures today and, and the similarities? Sure. I mean, I think, I think primary of the sort of communications failures is unsurprisingly governments have a real vested interest in trying to ignore these things until they're, they're forced not to. I mean, I guess unsurprisingly maybe isn't the right word, but if, if you're faced with on the one hand, what you think is going to incite panic or um, economic collapse. And on the other hand, you're hoping it's a, a virus, a new bacteria. You don't understand it. You can't see it. Even today, we have scientists who can tell us all about, you know, the genetic makeup of coronavirus. I can't tell you that. I can't see it. My physical experience of it is, is really limited. Um, so I can understand people's want or desire to just try to pretend like it's not there because we are also seeing the very real consequences of what happens when you do have to face a pandemic economically, right? Um, but what history has shown us and what we're experiencing now is that, you know, looking the other way, um, denying the existence of these sorts of pandemics or just wanting to believe, you know, belief alone does not turn away a new virus. It does not protect people. Um, that these sorts of delaying tactics were um, cataclysmic, really. I mean, certainly in the United States, we're absolutely cataclysmic and have set us up in a position now where we have, the, as, as your listeners know, the highest number of cases in, in the world. Um, and so, so much of it is just, um, you know, tackling a virus the same today as in the 16th century, it's a matter of political will just as much as it, it, as it is medical expertise. We have medical expertise they lacked, but the political will there to address the crisis, to take it head on, to, to, to sort of offer people a sense of control in the midst of so much uncertainty could have done a lot, I think, um, leaving aside the sort of medical uh, the, the, the spread of the virus, but could have done a lot to shore up confidence um, and give people a sense that there was there was some tactic um, that had been devised. And we still, I think, are, are really lacking uh, that kind of clear-eyed vision for our strategy, just as, as, just as they did in 15th century England. And I think another really interesting point in your op-ed that you wrote about is there's this sen a false sense of security that many Europeans had in believing that the sweat only affected, you know, quote unquote, the others, uh, you know, groups that did not include themselves. You know, the wealthy people believed that, you know, their modest kind of uh, the, their manners of living could really protect them, themselves from the virus. So um, which were in many cases a scientific ignorance, but also um, this kind of false sense of security that still perpetrates our society today, I suppose. Um, so do you see any parallels in that regard? Because a lot of young people today are also saying, oh, the virus is only for the old people. So I, I should be chilling. I should be partying. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I certainly do. And I, I'll actually tell you when I when I first. So this is 
coming from a, an academic publication timeline where, you know, you submit an article and it doesn't show up for another two years often. Um, it was really fun. I've published a couple of op-eds. It's really fun to publish in real time like that. But I submitted the article or the op-ed, I should say, um, I guess about a week before it was published. And in a span of that week's time, it went from the administration denying the existence of a threat. There's no cases in America. We're going to be fine to all of a sudden taking it very seriously. So my sort of the crux of my thesis about disinformation or miscommunication communication shifted. And what I saw develop over that week's time was anecdotally, I started to hear really educated, informed people start to make guesses, informed guesses about what was really going to happen with the virus, which I think is human nature in, in a lot of in a lot of ways. But I mean, besides, besides just the young who have um, been sort of scapegoated as a generation, I feel, in some of in some some publications, sort of, you know, the the what is it, Gen Z, I guess? Is that the right generation? That's I know. don't I don't even know. Gen Z, millennial, however you I don't know. It. No, millennials are not. Millennials are old. That's the problem. I Oh I, really? Yeah. I get really frustrated because I'm like, millennials have children. We're like in our late 30s. What are you talking about? We're not on spring break. Our kids got kicked out of daycare last week. Um, anyway. Um, <laughs> So no, I mean, whatever it is, that generation got scapegoated. That's certainly true. But I heard even responsible, educated adults hypothesizing that, you know, well, it really wasn't going to actually be bad in cities where it's sunny, or it's really actually not going to be bad in, in rural places. And I, I feel like what people were trying to convince themselves of was that there was some, some sense of control and also that it couldn't possibly be as bad for them as they were seeing at that point in Europe. It hadn't yet gotten really bad in the US. And I just was struck by those parallels. I mean, they're so clear. When the sweat hits England for the first time, it recurs again in 1511, I believe it is. And there's a really famous letter um, of Sir Thomas More, who is the author of Utopia, you may remember from high school English class. Um, and he's writing to his friend Erasmus, another name you may remember from early modern I'm not very history. Good at you, you're overestimating. Okay, so Dr. Utopia, <laughs> you know, the, the, the work about yeah. the utopian land that Thomas More writes, he's a he's you know also ended up being one of the martyrs. Um, the Catholic martyrs under Henry VIII, Erasmus, this great humanist figure. They're both sort of towers of intellect in early modern England. So Mora writes this letter to Erasmus, telling him of the death of their good friend, um, Andrea Amonio, who was the secretary to Henry VIII. He was his Latin secretary, which means he was the one taking dictation in Latin when Henry VIII was trying to, you know, write things. Um, and Andrea had convinced himself that he wasn't going to die, that his upright, um, upright living, his, his, you know, his wonderful moral life was going to protect him from the illness. And Moore writes in this letter to Erasmus that he was boasting of his sort of invincibility at a, at a dinner party, basically. And within three hours, he was dead. So you do, I did, I was just really struck by, again, Ammonio in early modern England would have been one of the most educated. He's coming out of Italy. He's aware of sort of public health measures and he's seen lots of illness. Everyone in England had seen lots of illness at this point. And even still, it's just sort of this trick of, of human nature to convince yourself that, that it's not going to be you. It seems that there is no correlation between, you know, uh, level of education and um, sometimes our rational um, understanding of some of those issues, especially in crisis times. Which I think is one of the really trickiest things about public health to get right. You know, I mean, on the one hand, it doesn't help for us to sort of scoff at people 
trying to convince themselves or not understanding the severity of disease, it's really difficult. You know, it's really difficult to get people, especially today when we don't have the kind of experience with epidemic disease that they had in 15th century England. It's really difficult to get people to really grasp the kind of global impact, societal impact we're facing. Um, None of us had any experience with that, which is why public health communication is so critical to to strike that, that note. To, um, to be a trustworthy, factual, uh, clear-voiced um, set, I guess, of guidelines to offer that to people is unbelievably valuable, equally as valuable as any of the sort of modern medicine we have that can eventually defeat the virus. The point you're bringing up is, is a really interesting and fascinating one that I, I haven't heard in the past couple of weeks because I feel like uh, what people have realized uh, in this country so far is that there is no social solidarity uh, across across the nation when it comes to issues like this. And and I say that in a sense, in a place like Germany, where there's already you know national health insurance, where everybody is is you know the the poor uh, and and the disabled, and everybody's all protected. There is a culture where people say we want to take care of each other. Whereas in a place like the U.S., you know, healthcare is still being debated as, oh, is it a human right or is it a privilege? You know, when people are still debating things like that, it's very hard uh, for rich people and poor people to say, oh, I'm going to start to make sacrifices for each other in in light of this. And I think people started to realize that. But I feel like the the point you are making is is an even stronger one, is the sense that even educated people, even good intentioned people... uh, hyper-rational human beings uh, can still be fooled somehow or, or fool themselves uh, in moments of crisis of the potential consequences that a virus could actually um, could, could entail um, so that they would look at the facts and they would look at the societal responses and still wouldn't see how, how badly it could get. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's true. I mean, I, I don't want to I want to be careful not to sort of set up a dichotomy between like the educated and the uneducated, or or have oh, it course, seem yeah. like like you know oh oh those of us who sit in our ivory tower we know what's really going on and the rest of the country doesn't. Um, I do think though that it is it has nothing to do with a sort of access to um, elite education to be able to understand the basic premise that in these times of health crisis and health emergency, which thankfully we have not had to face for over a century, the measures that are required involve, absolutely have to involve a concerted public effort towards the public good, that there's no way to handle these sorts of crises without that kind of um, gesture of public goodwill. And you have to get people to buy in to that kind of gesture of public goodwill. And I think what you're pointing out in Germany is that people have already bought in. They bought in years ago with the development of, of nationalized healthcare and the sort of post-World War II um, rehabilitating Europe post-World War II um, interest in welfare. The United States has had that moment and we've moved away from that moment. And I think, I mean, I, I think it will be interesting to see um, from a historical standpoint, what this particular crisis, this health crisis does in terms of reframing our debates around those things, because I think it has a a real potential to shift our conversation in really important ways. I mean, I can take it back historically and say that, you know, so England's behind the times when the sweat shows up in 1485, they do finally get with the program over the course of the 16th century, largely because they're the people in charge, um, 
look to Italian cities and French cities that are, you know, implementing these these public health policies. And they realize that they have to do more. They want to follow this model that seems to protect people better. Um, and, And if we are... We're, we're in the same moment, you know, you point to Germany. Absolutely. Germany has a fraction of the mortality from coronavirus that we have. There are other nations similarly that have a more robust welfare system. It, it's not, it's again, it's a question of policy, of political will and policy. It has nothing to do with the vir- virility, the, you know, that word is also hard, of the virus, because the virus is the same. It's the same virus in Germany as it is here. What we're seeing is a difference in political action. Um, the vaccine will work as well here as there eventually. But in the meantime, we have to figure out political solutions. So why don't we go slightly d- deeper into the history since you're a historian? Uh, what exactly happened afterwards? So uh, I believe the virus came in waves uh, in, in England. Mm-hmm. It didn't just, you know, come one year. And, and also you mentioned very interestingly that they eventually turned to other countries for insights and, and got out of it. So, so that was the process? Well, yeah. So, I mean, they never defeated the virus in the sense that we could, obviously, because they did not have uh, modern medicine. But, um, yes, it, it rec- returned in waves. As I said, modern epidemiologists suspect that it was similar to hantavirus pulmonary syndrome. They think that there was an environmental factor that contributed to its return. So actually, there are some parallels there. I know that there are epidemiologists today who've suggested that um, a warming climate, global climate change is going to, uh, you know, coupled with our very global economy is going to lead to more of these global epidemiological events as viruses are coming out of um, other mammalian vectors and moving into human populations. In the case of England, um, because of warm, wet summers, again, this is all, this is sort of hypothesized because we don't have great records from the 15th and 16th centuries, but we think there was a series of warm, wet summers. And every time this happened, you would get an increase in rodent populations and you'd get a return of the virus. So um, the virus came 1485, 1511, 1518, 1528, and then finally in 1552. And by 1552, the sort of public health apparatus had really shifted. And that's the first time that you get a practicing physician in England actually publishing about the virus. So John Caius, who was um, president of the Royal College of Physicians, which was the um, sort of official licensing bureau for medical practice in England, again, a very late arrival in England, the rest of Europe had had these sorts of bodies, these institutional medical bodies since the 14th century. Um, the president of the Royal College Physician actually writes a book and he writes it for the common people. He recognizes that ev- average people need information and in fact spends like the first five or six pages of the book justifying writing in English because at the time in the 16th century, most learned medical texts would have been written in Latin. So for the highly educated and elite, and you would not write something, someone as learned as John Caius would not write something in English, but he did. And he wrote about how he needed to write it in English so that common people could understand what was going on with the sweat. His descriptions and his advice obviously bear no relevance to modern medicine. So we can read it and say, okay, does it, it wouldn't do anything to mitigate the sweat except for, you know, isolating yourself um, from other people. On the other hand, he still recognized that it was really important to get information out because people were scared, right? People are scared and fear leads to disorder. And again, then you have a public problem, a societal problem, a political problem rather than just a medical problem. Um, and then after 1552, for reasons we don't really know, it doesn't show up in England again. Of course, there are other epidemic diseases like bubonic plague that recur 
every few years in England. So they do, they do continue to have to think about public health measures, but the sweat itself doesn't show up again after 1552. Uh, so did England start to do better afterwards? Did they learn the lesson finally? Uh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, but the first, so 1552 is a sweating sickness. By 1563, they are publishing um, plague bills. And actually, it's really interesting. I, I mentioned before that the English recognized that other countries were doing better. And we actually have evidence of this, that there was an Italian physician living in London in 1563 um, during one of the sort of major outbreaks of bubonic plague. And there was a lot of, obviously, suffering and death. And he wrote to Queen Elizabeth's chief advisor, Robert Cecil, basically suggesting like, you know, we know how to, we can do this in Italy. Like we have public health measures. Here's some <laughs> things you could try. Um, and within a year, Cecil, he's again, really prominent, important advisor um, to Queen Elizabeth starts publishing quarantine orders, mandating that like, if you, if you're a house with the plague, you have to mark the outside of your door. You have to stay inside. If you leave your house, you have to carry a white stick with you that shows that you, your household is infected, that they close the gates to the city, that you can't export things out. So, I mean, all these sorts of common sense um, public health measures get implemented and it, and, and they're sort of then become on par with much of the rest of Europe than for the later 16th century. And by the 17th century, you see this incredible, um, develop medical development, medical advancements in England. So it just goes to show like it doesn't, you know, you can be behind the times and you can catch up and then you can go on to to um, to have a robust uh, medical uh, economy. Um, but, you know, improvement is always is always possible. Uh, so uh, let's look at the response today. So it seems that the Eng England had to do, you know, a series of actions in order to eventually build up the public health institution. But those are things that we already have. It almost seems to me that as long as President Trump's administration uh, start to convey good, healthy information, they can they can do this. They can they can really correct the previous mistakes that if they want to. So is that true? Can what what can we do today to really uh, not have you know quote unquote communications failures anymore? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the really frustrating, but one of many really frustrating things that I feel like there were just, they're easy fixes, right? That could have happened early on. I mean, the CDC is a federal organization designed to track and inform the public about outbreaks, right? I mean, it's the sole, it's one of the major mandates of the CDC. Um, and one of the tragedies in the lead up to this outbreak is that they were sidelined entirely. They're our public health organization, right? I mean, just yesterday, President Trump decided to defund the World Health Organization for reasons that, I mean, in my opinion, um, out of a desire to scapegoat a, a different public health organization and not to take on a, any of the sort of blame for the failure to handle the pandemic in the United States. These are easy fixes. The CDC has been publishing what verifiable information about the virus since it first emerged in China in late December. Um, the CDC has probably waffled more than it should have on um, public health measures in the sense of sort of advice they're giving to the public. The mask situation comes to mind. But I think what we're seeing there is, is, is the CDC being influenced by a culture of disinformation coming from the top. I mean, when when you have the president openly um, countermanding scientific and medical experts, it creates an environment 
where it's very easy to disregard experts and it's very difficult then to provide the kind of um, unifying information that is absolutely necessary in these moments of public emergency. There needs to be a single voice, not a single voice of, among experts, but a single mo- voice among political um, power, Authority. basically authorities, right? Uh, and we're seeing that among governors. Yeah. yeah, we're yeah. seeing that in governors, of course. So it's not impossible. <laughs> uh, absolutely. So, you know, President Trump claimed uh, that, that he knew uh, of the potential severity of the coronavirus from the onset. And, and he has simply downplayed the crisis uh, so that to, you know, appear optimistic and to stay off panic. So, uh, you know, it, let's just say we set off aside his true intention, whatever he did to, you know, the World Health Organization or, or contradicting the experts. Let's just say you are a well-intentioned president. Should you, in moments of crisis, try to downplay the people's expectations or, you know, to quote unquote, stay off the panic and, and things like that? So I don't know if you have seen similar examples throughout history when people um, try to, you know, come off in certain ways to, to manage public expectations and sorts. Well, I mean, I, I think it's always at the heart of the political response to pandemic, historically speaking, and now um, Italian city-states had public health health measures far sooner than um, did England, but even these sort of robust early modern public health measures were always subject to this compromise between do you in-state quarantine and have potentially your wealthiest citizens leave, have your economy shut down? Like, I do understand that these are also real, um, real economic factors and consequences of taking a pandemic seriously, so to speak. Um, on the other hand, uh, if President Trump did, did know about the severity of the virus in January when he says he did, um, I think we've literally in real time seen it play out that ignoring something doesn't make it go away that in fact in no way did that mitigate our economic the economic severity of this crisis it in fact it may have exacerbated it we may have as a result a far longer epidemic than we would have had if you'd taken decisive action early and i i was thinking um when looking over when thinking about this conversation, I read a, an op-ed in The Guardian yesterday about Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, who was sort of getting top marks for her handling of the crisis. And she took decisive action really early on. And and it's, and it's what the op-ed focused on was her communication strategy. It's obviously controversial. People don't want to be shut up in their homes. And it's really difficult to see businesses close. I get that. Um, but you have to be able to communicate communicate your message clearly and and help people to understand why it's necessary. And from this op-ed's perspective, it was, I think, written by um, communications director for Tony Blair from like 97 to 2003. From his perspective, she's done an excellent job. And certainly from an epidemiological standpoint, New Zealand has nothing like the rate of transmission that we have in the United States. So again, it's possible. Uh, Absolutely. Um, It's, you know, we should recognize how, you know, today's situation uh, is not inevitable, uh, you know, has not been inevitable. It's, it's the result of a series of actions that we consciously made in the past couple of months uh, in order to get to the States. So, so absolutely. Uh, but it's very interesting because I also read this New York Times article saying that President Trump's approval rating is at an all-time high, you know, with a lot of voters 
uh, both Republican and centrist and Democrats all citing that they are finally seeing a serious leader showing presidential qualities. So, you know, the, the fact that he's standing in front of, uh, you know, the, the press in the Oval uh, Office or, or the White House press room and, and telling the public about the crisis make people feel like, wow, that's that's a leader communicating uh, effective strategies to us. So in that sense, it almost seems that no matter what the actual underlying action is, no matter what the actual communications failure is, you could just come off in a certain way and the public still has faith in you. What's the... <laughs> so I will I will admit to being distressed when the first round of sort of these, these stories came out about his approval ratings bump, um, in part because I, I felt like people were becoming receptive to this disinformation about the crisis. And this, you know, it felt like we were doomed to repeat these, these communications failures. If that was the way people were receiving them. I have since sort of revised my, or my fear has been abated by the fact that, that this approval ratings bump when compared to other presidents that have had to handle similarly terrible crises. I think I'm thinking of George W. Bush after nine 11, um, his approval rating, if I recall, and I, I double check these statistics, went from somewhere in the 60s prior to 9-11, and then it peaked at 92%. Um, so what we've seen with President Trump, if I'm not completely mistaken, is a small bump, which has since corrected from early April. Um, I do think you're absolutely right that any sort of semblance, at least he's getting out in front of the public. So on the one hand, that right there is going to is going to ensure that people start to listen to what you say. I mean, if you're there every day saying something, people will listen. You're the president of the United States. On the other hand, the nature of these press conferences, because they have been um, largely antagonistic toward experts, particularly towards the media, because they have framed this as an adversarial relationship often, um, regionally adversarial, pitting you know Republican governors against Democratic governors. I mean, this sort of adversarial take um, in the midst of a public health crisis. I I just I don't see the kind. I, I don't think that this is going to correlate to your hypothesis that any communication is good communication. I I'm uh, skeptical. Absolutely. And also just as you rightly mentioned, uh, you know, a small percentage raise, it could be attributable to a very different range of factors and, uh, you know, randomness or errors. And it it doesn't have. Or, I mean, it very much could be. I I do think absolutely it it, the bump came from, Okay, well, now he's at least doing something. Of course. I mean, there's going to be I don't think that's surprising that there's that there's a bump there. I, I think if people really thought he were taking charge of the crisis, it would have been a more significant bump. Um, and I also wonder, I, I would be interested. I mean, I, the New York Times article, I, I clicked on the link. And I think it was published March 31st. So I'd be interested to see what the um, what the polls are. What the follow-up you know, is. Yeah. Two weeks yeah. in. Yeah. I mean, now that we really are at the peak. Because in March 31st, we hadn't yet, you know, it was starting to get bad in New York for sure. And New Jersey, where I am. Um, but it hadn't, we hadn't really sort of seen the scope of this kind of national suffering. So I just... I wonder, I wonder, I mean, I'd have to, I'd have to look. No, no, no. I mean, I, I also want to just pivot to uh, another focus of this interview, which, which is kind of the role of media in all this, not just President Trump. And, and you know, unlike 15th century, right now, there's so much more information available to the, to the public at, on the internet, and, and it's way more easily accessible. So do you think that, you know, as compared to the 15th century, 
the public right now would have a greater responsibility on themselves. The burden is on the public to find reliable information and form opinions on their own rather than you know, relying on the authority or the government per se. I think the difference is in classifying what you mean by find reliable information. So we are, of course, incredibly uh, privileged in the United States. Uh, it's foundational to who we are um, to have a free and open press. Um, so, of course, we have access to expertise, uh, expert reporting. I imagine that if you're anything like me, most of your listeners have dived down a rabbit hole of COVID-19 research at some point over the course of this pandemic. And that's important. And I, and in no way does, does that sort of communication, um, or the access to that, just that kind of communication, in my opinion, in no way does that then mitigate the need for leadership communication, because those are two different things. I mean, reporting on, you know, symptoms or reporting on um, the instances of mortality in specific hospitals or failures to distribute ventilators. This is vital information that we need. Um, the public does have access to it and should avail themselves of it. I don't expect the government to give us all the information we need, then we'd be looking at something far more authoritarian than what I have in mind. But outlining public health policy in communication and and providing that, I mean, in theory, the government in times of crisis should act as the voice of sort of rational, factual, evidence-based research delineated through experts working for the government that then direct us in our actions. So the kind of information that leads to action should be coming from the government. Yes. Um, I don't think that that should be left up to individuals because as I mean, we've already talked about in moments of public health crisis, this cannot be an individual response. It can't be that, well, Tiger need, Tiger's done the research. So now he knows. He has to <laughs> mask, right. But if you're, uh, if you're the only one wearing the mask, then it doesn't do much good. Well, the thing I am truly worried about is that people have an easier time forming their own opinion right now and spreading it to others because of platforms like Twitter. I mean, if you're in 15th century and you have your own, you know, weird conception of what the virus is, maybe you spread it to 10 people at max. But now if you go on Twitter and, and you start shouting at, at a expert or, you know, trolling someone or spreading misinformation and forwarding certain tweets, you could cause a pretty lasting damage in the public forum. Uh, oh, so I think the nature has changed. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, of course, the nature has changed. That's not to say that people in the 15th and 16th centuries weren't also very, very worried about disinformation. I mean, we, they didn't have social media, but they were still really worried about the spread of rumor and conspiracy. And certainly after, um, I mean, so one of the sort of outgrowths of the emergence of the printing press. The printing press was sort of the official communications organ for early modern states because it was very closely licensed and censured throughout really the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, but then out of this very public orderly set of communication, what you see in early modern England is this explosion in what are called manuscript separates. So people basically circulating these hand copied texts that have inside political information or rumor or libel or whatnot. Um, in, in the manuscripts that I study from the 15th and 16th century that 
have a lot of, that are owned by sort of everyday people, if you can call them that, not the wealthiest, not the most elite, much of it, much of them contain medical um, recipes and that sort of thing. I note one of the ways I can date these manuscripts is because I start to see recipes for cures for the sweating sickness show up. So even though there was nothing published in England until 1552 that addressed the sweating sickness, somehow this information, sort of folklore and opinion about how to treat the sweat transmits all over the place. Nearly every recipe book that I've looked at that's, that is still being used after 1485 will have a recipe or two or three for how to deal with the sweating sickness. So all I'm trying to say is you're absolutely right. The scope of the impact is so much bigger with social media. Um, we, things can, I mean, it's a pity that we have to use this analogy, but people, things can go viral um, and spread. Quite, <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> no pun intended. You're absolutely right that we are, that the average consumer of information is going to be faced with far more options, um, much more disinformation on the World Wide Web than, than, you know, two generations ago. But, but that doesn't, you know, but these are problems that, that human society civilizations have been thinking of and trying to mitigate, you know, for hundreds of years. It's just so dangerous because I, I was uh, reading this article in, in New York Times called, uh, titled Why Telling People They Don't Need Masks by, Backfired, which is written by uh, a professor of information science at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Her name is Zeynep Tufeki. She's been, uh, you know, studying tech and society issues and Twitter, those social media modes for, for a long time. And she brought up this really interesting point. Uh, she made this argument that many of the sort of recent missteps from the media these days could be a result of the media's uh, unique, quote unquote, cultural scripts. Uh, for example, she argues that when the, the travel ban was first suggested against China, the media, especially sort of on the left wing, uh, made the error of running this through the same cultural script they use for the Muslim travels ban, which is that, oh my God, we should denounce it. And this is absolutely racist. And, and maybe tr President Trump had different intentions other than a pure public health intention, but that doesn't detract from the, from the fact that the travel ban was a correct move. And uh, it's not just the right-wing media. It's not just the left-wing media. It's just that, uh, you know, the cultural scripts uh, exist in, in media landscape these days. And as a result, we could follow a certain script that actually lead us to wrong conclusions. So I would love to hear a little bit more of your thoughts on uh, whether that played a role in our communication failures. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I thought that point, the, the, the comparison of the cultural script in the, the travel ban was a really interesting and good one, because I do think it sort of encapsulates it in a nutshell. On the one hand, you could make the credible argument that the travel ban was a failure because it didn't go far enough, because it didn't actually limit a lot of travelers from China. Anyone, you know, coming to back to the U.S., um, residents of the United States could come without much screening whatsoever. It was sort of a sort of Band-Aid on it. Like, it's a travel ban. I don't need to screen people now. It's fine. Um, and I do think that it does play into the othering of people with the virus in the sense that it was a travel ban created to stop the Chinese spread, but it did. It thought of the virus is only affecting people in China, right? It's like ignores the epidemiological vector of the virus, which is that it can affect anyone who's in contact with the virus. But on the other hand, you're absolutely right that by sort of knee-jerk pushing against some of these, what seemed at the time to, I think a lot of writers is over the top measures, when on the one hand, 
President Trump seemed to be really downplaying the severity of the virus and then to put in place this travel ban, which is which is the first sort of public measure he took. So then the media, I think, was conditioned to read it through exactly that cultural script. I think there have been a lot of really bad takes about this virus that that as as even the media had to reframe its take on what is going on, you know, it had to sort of reassess what is reasonable in the time of a public health emergency and what isn't. Um, and again, a lot of that, the cultural script could have shifted, I think. It could have, the government has a role in shifting that cultural script. And right now, in a sort of complete lack of definitive communication strategy, the media is left to sort of pick what it, to sort of take an angle. I mean, I think not to criticize the media too um, robustly in the sense that often they're doing the best they can to arrive at the story as it's developing. And in this case, the story was developing, you know, you know, at lightning speed over, over the early weeks of this emerging. I mean, I think back to like driving in my car, I don't know, probably January 25th or something and hearing about lockdown in Wuhan and being like, wow, that's crazy. I just, how are they living like that? I mean, I just can't imagine what, you know, having absolutely no sense that, Less than two months later, I was going to be basically in lockdown. So I, I think the scale of this, the change that we've had to confront, have meant that people have fallen back on these cultural scripts in this moment of crisis, perhaps even more so than we do in a sort of normal, quote unquote, political moment. You know, um, it, it's such an interesting point that you brought up. Uh, you, you know, you said in moments like this, the government needs to step in to shape the cultural script when. It is uh, somehow wrong or, or slightly distorted from the reality, and and I think that kind of goes back to our discussion about social media, which is where, you know, Dr. Tefeki also made this wonderful point, you know, and I quote her here, you know, social media is a form of socialization, and socialization is perhaps the most potent form of shaping of humans. It's how we get our cultural socialization, which is we look at our peers and see what they do, and and if you look at uh, many studies, top-down information is less likely to convince people than what their peers do. So, uh, end quote. And and in that sense, uh, people go on Twitter when there's when there's all kinds of cultural scripts. Then people just go on Twitter and look at what other people are doing, and they have their own cultural scripts, and they react to that, uh, and then they they behave according to that. So, the, in that sense, the government should have absolutely stepped in to have a more unified communication strategy. Um, absolutely. Well, and I think, I mean, I don't want to make it seem like uh, like the government could have sort of done away with all the sort of fringe yeah, conspiracy yeah. theories. Like no no one can ever get a handle <laughs> on that. I, there would still yeah. be like, you know, ridiculous memes circulating on Twitter and, and all kinds of bad advice. I'm. It's not that in our, and I don't, and that's not the government's role. Like that, that does verge into censorship. I'm not advocating for censorship here, but it is amazing what um, a set of clear guidelines um, and a sort of serious-minded effort to acknowledge the public's lack of information and, and fear might have done, I think, in, in just, just to steer them towards more reputable sources, right? Like, I mean, look at the way the country has embraced Dr. Fauci. It's, oh, it's everyone was just looking for the person who could give them some answers. And you're right, you'll we'll turn to Twitter. Or in the case of my 15th century people, they're going to circulate recipes in informal networks among their friends and family to try to deal with this sickness because it's 
it was affecting them terribly. They were scared. They wanted information. I mean, that is a universal unifying human trait in the face of unknown diseases. Um, we're going to look for ways to mitigate them, and we want someone to tell us what to do. Uh, I'm glad you brought up the, the concept of censorship. Why shouldn't we censor fake information, fake news and, and misinformation on platforms like Twitter? Um, I think... Yeah. Well, well, I think the question is different, whether the government censors or whether Twitter has an obligation as a private entity to um, to do to remove content that is undeniably going to create harm to its readers. You know, advice to I don't know. I, I can't think of an example off the top of my head there. Those are two very different things. I mean, Facebook and Twitter, they're private enterprises. They have they have they're certainly, if they would like to screen their tweets and and remove disinformation, that's on them. I think they're also walking a, a sort of a, a, a fine line between getting rid of disinformation and then also seeming to be shaping the narrative too much, since they have made their entire um, enterprise about supposedly the free and open, free and open <laughs> exchange of information. Now, the government, however, uh, has no role in going on Twitter and censoring that information. That's really interesting because uh, we were talking with Professor Peter Singer uh, just two weekends ago, and we uh, asked him, you know, from a philosophical or ethical point of view, when it is actually justified for the government to step in and intervening in people's uh, individual choices in order to achieve a better public health outcome. So, for example, uh, he is advocating for the closing of wet markets, you know, the, those wildlife animal markets where you slaughter the animals, which uh, is presumably where the virus uh, took, you know, stemmed from in, in Wuhan. And, and he's saying if shutting down all the wet markets or forcing everybody to wear masks in public could lead to a better public health outcome, then the government should do it. So, so, uh, so um, in, in that sense, uh, you know, I kind of challenged him, why shouldn't we shut down Coca-Cola? You know, and in this case, why shouldn't we uh, censor misinformation on Twitter, which would certainly uh, lead to a more optimal outcome for the greater public good? Uh, but, but I think you brought up a really wonderful point that, you know, it's, it's very different for the government to do it versus Twitter and Facebook choosing to do it. Well, and I think, you know, there's... In the case of censoring the free exchange of information and knowledge, this, the detriment, the the ill effects to American society would far outweigh, in my opinion, the um, positive effects of removing a few bad actors. I think, you know, in the case of telling people to wear masks, the, what are the downsides of that other than we're going to have to break out our sewing machines and remember how to, you know, stitch like, like maybe we all don't yeah. or, or teach ourselves to sew or, you know, I mean, the, the downsides, I, that's the ethical dilemma. You know, one of the things I wanted to bring up or talk about in the course of the discussion is how these public health measures in England that emerged after the sweat sort of stopped ravaging the English population in the mid 16th century were the development of poor laws, um, the earliest poor laws in England, which sort of look something like the earliest ideas about the welfare state, but they have none of, <laughs> they're not good. So I don't want to, I don't want to sort of overly, um, stretch <laughs> they only look like the welfare state in, insofar as communities are recognizing that they need to do something to care for the poor and the sick and the disabled. Um, what this often means in practice is, or what it very frequently means in practice is putting the poor and the infirm in poor houses or prisons. 
which is obviously not great. Um, but I do, I do think it's the, there is this moment when public health measures really take off that societies, early modern societies, recognize that there are some societal problems that absolutely have to be managed um, by the public. That they they cannot be managed individually anymore. Um, in England, these laws develop after the Reformation, so church institutions that used to handle poverty and the sick um, are no longer there. And, and these sorts of um, institutions have to be taken over by the state. But I was struck in reading about the public health measures and the poor laws um, that even in 16th century England, it was obvious that the very sickest um, coming out of a pandemic, if you want to restore your society to health, both economically and physically, that the public has to provide for those people. There's no way out of a pandemic if you aren't taking public resources from the broader society, from healthy people and redistributing them to provide food and healthcare and shelter for people that are sick. Um, and it really did strike me. Again, I don't wanna overstate that, that these were all charitable, wonderful, not discriminatory practices. It's still the 16th century. But I, I was struck by the fact that even in the 16th century, that was obvious. And I think it was perhaps more obvious because they faced epidemics so frequently. This wasn't, I mean, even now in our moment of, of really facing it for the first time in a century, I think a lot of us are of the mindset that once we get through this, then we're done. And hopefully that's true. Gosh, I would love for that to be true. Um, but we might be done with pandemic. We're not going to be done with, you know, the incredible health crises and in, in, impoverished populations in the United States with um, rising inequality, that sort of thing. And all of these these things are only um, exacerbated or, or heightened in moments of pandemic. Um, and we can take a page out of perhaps the 16th century to people who face this regularly and recognize that these moments require public solutions, that there's no way around um, public solutions, public redistribution of resources to the sickest. So if you were a policymaker right now and, and you, could, you have the choice to do whatever you want in terms of the communication strategy, uh, what would you what would be the, some of the next steps you would take? I mean, I think for people to really if, if we want to revive the economy, which is going to be the next step after we beat this virus, because I have no doubt that we will. We have brilliant experts and scientists and epidemiologists who are going to figure out a vaccine and we're going to we're going to get through this, certainly. But the next thing is going to be convincing people that they're safe and that they're supported in the United States. I think a lot of us are going to emerge from this quite shell-shocked and uncertain and hesitant to invest in much or do much of anything for fear that, you know, something like this could happen again. Um, if the government wants to encourage economic growth again, they're going to have to convince people that they're supported. And I think what that looks like is a massive extension in um, healthcare benefits to beyond beyond the current Biden plan to extend to 60, I think that's just not going to be feasible. And I really hope if that's if that's the one outcome of this crisis to have a real conversation about the insanity of linking healthcare to employment when you have a moment like this, then hopefully that'll be that'll be a clear conversation. And then second, um, a real robust conversation about unemployment benefits. I mean, the the striking difference between the way the United States has has responded to this still on individual terms. We've increased access to unemployment benefits, but we still require you to apply for them. And you're still going to have to lose your job first versus the way Europe 
has guaranteed wages for for employers, hoping that they don't lose their job, assuming that everyone should get paid. You know, I mean, that's that's a very different way of framing public responses to public health and the public good. After I read your op-ed, I, I feel like there seems to be a clear message behind, you know, the context in which you are presenting your research and uh, the way y- you put forth this just juxtaposition between what happened uh, in, in the 15th, 16th century and today. So what impact do you really hope um, your piece to, to have on policy, on people's awareness? I, I would love to hear about just how you came up with the idea of, you know, writing this piece, submitting it, and also what you hope to achieve with it. A short op-ed was really just intended to remind people that um, for as much as we have advanced medically, and certainly we have, that there are, we may think of ourselves as more advanced, more rational, more logical in the face of these illnesses. Um, When we are facing a dearth of information and don't understand the threat we're facing, we tend to minimize, deny, convince ourselves that it's not a real problem, just like people in the 16th century. So that sort of had a narrow message. My broader research into, I mean, my sort of my broader scope, I'm interested in the way people access information in the sort of later medieval and early modern worlds. I'm interested in what happens when you open up access to information among everyday people, um, when people start to read and write um, in ways that they hadn't ever before. You know, and in the span of a couple of generations, you see people all of a sudden able to own books and write down relevant, useful information. So in that sense, in the broader context of my research, I am really interested in this question of disinformation. I'm really interested in this question of what it, how it changes your understanding of the broader world if you think that you can have access to information, if you think you can collect it and have it at your fingertips and you can judge between various sources and, and how you make decisions about which sources are trustworthy and which ones aren't and, and how what your reaction is to sort of authoritative sources versus um, maybe subversive sources. So um, in my larger research, I'm just interested in how the, how the way we access information, when that changes, how that ends up having much broader effects on our society at large. Uh, I mean, before we kind of wrap up, I, I just want to, you know, ask you, you know, since the name of our show is Policy Punchline, what is the punchline here, do you think, you know, not just for policy, but it could also be for your research, for any takeaway that our listeners should have? Oh, the punchline. Um, I mean, I think... My research in the op-ed and in our present moment, the one truism that you can sort of point to about human nature and human experience is that we're going to seek out information wherever we can find it, especially in moments of crisis. We seek out information no matter what, but especially in moments of crisis. Um, And recognizing that our desire to know can lead us into um, perhaps actions that are not good for society or perhaps actions that are not good for our health, recognizing that and and formulating a robust sort of countermeasure to that, recognizing that the role of the government, the role of leadership, a real leadership role is um, addressing that human desire uh, is equally as important, in my opinion, as any of the medical interventions, epidemiological interventions that we are pursuing. Our scientific expertise is going to take care of that. Our sort of humanistic, interpersonal communications expertise needs to address the other factor, which is equally important. You know, I I am often worried sometimes because, you know, just as you rightly said, 
humans have this kind of innate nature to seek out more information. And, and so why should, and, and, and the current age, you know, with technology and the internet, it just made easier for people to access information. And that includes misinformation, wrong information, bad information. Uh, so in that sense, shouldn't we try to, um, I don't know, do less with, with, in, in terms of, you know, all the people coming out to, to, give information to people you know i sometimes question my own impact you know why am i hosting a podcast show trying to spread more information about the COVID 19 crisis when people could obviously all go to the new york times or all go to the you know one you know more centralized place for for some of those things and and instead of twitter uh and and maybe that would be the better outcome no i mean i i think what i said earlier about different categories we have to define the sort of the what's what's the goal right and what your goal is to to foster conversations because i can go to the cdc's website and i can read a, a checklist of things that i should be doing like washing my hands and staying socially distanced but that doesn't tell me that doesn't tell me the complete story about the scope of human knowledge about the coronavirus crisis right you're the one that's bringing part of that story to the public there's nothing wrong with wanting to know absolutely nothing wrong with seeking out new information um, that's the crux of what we do in higher education, right? We encourage people to ask more questions and learn more things. Um, it's that what we are seeing is that governments have, and in democratic free societies, have a an especially important role in fostering the spread of accurate information. I mean, I brought up the sort of adversarial tone of these press briefings, where at the one hand, that President Trump is supposedly guiding the nation and then at the same time denigrating other sources of information. I mean, that's that's not conducive. It, it's not that the government has to be the only voice. They just have to be a clear voice, a voice that doesn't reject um, facts or science, a voice that encourages the safe um, and uh, what's the right word? Maybe safe isn't the right word. The um, informed pursuit of information. So it so sounds like you're an optimist when it comes to Many of those issues. Uh, it's it's a really encouraging, motivating message. To I I hope so. I want to be an optimist. I'm not always an optimist. Let's be. I mean, <laughs> I'm definitely not always an optimist. You're. I I feel like though the. I I do feel like though when we look around, we see that it's not impossible to get this right. If we look at you know we look at other countries, we look at governors handling this crisis very well. I mean, anecdotally, I have. Conser relatively conservative friends living in California who are absolutely huge fans of Gavin Newsom right now because he's done such yeah. a good job, like getting the message out, being what seems like an even-tempered, even-keeled, just, he's not, he's not the show, right? All he is is the vector of information. He's just bringing you the expertise that you need to make informed decisions. It's not that hard to do this. We just happen to, I feel like, have, have, um, found ourselves in the perfect storm of an administration that has a very hostile relationship with information at a time when clear-sighted um, sharing of information is incredibly important. But these things are also easily remedied. I mean, remedying the, the, the factors behind the spread of a disease like coronavirus is going to take far more um, learned scientific policymakers than me, but I can, t I, I, the, the communication strategy, that's, that's not rocket science. 
Yeah, yeah, that, 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 that's, that's so nice to hear those thoughts from you because, you know, people don't make this nuanced distinction. You know, I make the mistake, I think, just 10 minutes before this, you know, the clear voice versus the only voice, uh, you know, the government, no, no, no need to be the only authority dictating the show or being the show itself, but rather simply be uh, the conduit of good information and making sure people to, uh, get to understand what, what they need to understand. That, that's absolutely what we need to do. And that sounds like pretty realistic, even in, in, in a, a place where Twitter and, and with all that misinformation, it seems hopeless and, and, and people easily can get cynical. It's realistic if we really try to do it, just as you mentioned in California. So uh, hopefully we can all get there very soon. Yes. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for joining me all the way from Princeton, Dr. Reynolds. It's been such a wonderful conversation with you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Uh, awesome. And, and this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Please uh, visit us on policypunchline.com, rate and review us, uh, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud. Uh, and, and by the way, before I end, Dr. Reynolds, where can people also learn more about your work and your research? Oh, um, well, I the op-ed in the Washington Post. Um, I have a couple of articles in academic journals if they're so interested. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I should, I hopefully within the next couple of years, uh, academic publishing takes forever. We'll have a book out on the, um, the how-to book in the making of early modern English culture. So a, a study of how people access information before print. Perfect. That, that sounds great. I hope we, we, we did, uh, you know, our part of a fair share, you know, of our duty of being the conduit of great academic thoughts like yours, you know, to, to the people. So hopefully we, we also do that. But so. yeah, thank, thank you again for, for being on the show with me today. Thank you. Awesome. And, and again, this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Thank you so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.